Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Welcome back, bookends, to our October bonus episode with the much-loved author Victoria Hislop. Today, I'm here to discuss Victoria's latest novel, The Figurine. Set between the UK and Athens, we follow Helena. As a child, she visits her grandparents' Greek apartment each summer, naive to her grandfather's involvement with the Hunter dictatorship. When, as an adult, she inherits their apartment, she discovers the horrifying secrets of her heritage, the roots of which grow further than she'd ever imagined. This is a sweeping, multi-generational tale of family, power and corruption. The figurine is out now and published by Headline Review. Victoria Hislop is an international best-selling author. Victoria quickly became a household name after the publication of her debut novel, The Island, which has sold more than 6 million copies and was turned into a 26-part Greek TV series. The much-anticipated sequel, One August Night, spent 12 weeks in the top 10 hardback fiction charts and was also adapted for Greek television. In total, Victoria has written eight books, all inspired by the rich history and culture of the Mediterranean, which has led her to be granted honorary citizenship by the President of Greece. As well as her writing and her work as an executive producer on the TV adaptations of her novels, Victoria is also an ambassador for Lepra, a UK charity that raises money to treat leprosy sufferers worldwide. She's also an ambassador for the National Literacy Trust and was recently appointed patron of NOSOS 2025, which is raising funds for a new research centre at one of Greece's most significant archaeological sites. I could go on. There is much to rave about this woman and her work, and we are thrilled to be in the presence of literary royalty. So, Victoria, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Well, thank you very, very much for inviting me. Certainly don't think of myself as literary royalty, but that's... <laughs> it's pretty clear that you are. I mean, any, anybody that I've told that I'm having you on the podcast has been like, oh my God, that is amazing. And I've like never had such a quick reaction from people when I've told them about guests on the podcast because I feel like if people aren't in the bookish world, they kind of, they don't know um, the sort of debut authors that we speak to or they might not have heard of specific authors, but everyone seems to have heard of you. So <laughs> you clearly are. Flattering, that's very flattering. <laughs> so I'm going to start us off with our favourite question on the podcast, which is what are you currently reading? Well, I just started it yesterday, actually, and I'm really excited by this book. It's called 15 Wild Decembers, and it's all about my favourite author, who sadly only wrote one book in her entire life, which was Emily Bronte. Um, who obviously, of course, wrote Wuthering Heights. And what a brilliant book it is. I've loved it since I was a teenager. And I've always wished that she'd lived to the 100 years old and written 50 novels. But there, there, there it was, one book. And suddenly there's this beautiful novel I'm really engrossed already called 15 Wild Decembers by Karen Powell. She's either Powell or Pohl, P-O-W-E-L-L. And it actually just came out last week. And it's an imaginary scenario with Emily Bronte and her brothers and sisters. And it really does make me feel I've been taken back, you know, to Emily Bronte's 
life because I've always, I think most people very strongly identify Emily herself with Wuthering Heights. You just feel this is something a little bit like her life and a bit like the environment that she grew up in. And 15 Wild Decembers, I think, is going to be something that absorbs me for, you know, many long evenings that we're about to enter into with autumn. Obviously, I haven't got to the end yet. It's what I'm currently reading, but I have a feeling I'm not going to be disappointed. And also, Karen is young. You know, she, she this is only her second novel, but she's clearly a talent. And um, I hope I'll meet her one day. And I hope she goes on to write lots of novels. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she will. I wanted to ask, why... Is, why would you say that Emily Bronte is one of your favourite authors? You know, you said she's only written this one book. What is it about her that, that you love so much? Well, I suppose a little bit of it is her own biography, which just kind of enriches your sense of her novel. I mean, it's a little bit hard to disentangle the two because I think I've probably read more about Wuthering Heights in terms of numbers of words over the years and the actual novel itself. You know, I've read it several times since I was a teenager. And I think the very first time I read it, I was an adolescent and yet it's an adult book. And I think it just grabbed me at a particular age and it, it means different things every time I've read it in subsequent years. But I think one of the important things for me was her use of place as a character. You know, obviously the book itself is named after the house in which it is predominantly set. And I think that is something that has influenced my own writing. Character or a place, a location, really influences the people who live in that place and it defines their, their characters, what happens to them, their moods and just who they are. And I, I, I am a firm believer in that. You know, I think very much we're all a little bit defined by where we grow up, the weather that surrounds us, you know, climate, what we're looking at. And I think Wuthering Heights just did that so masterfully. So yes, it had a had a big influence. And when I was 14, and it was, as I say, you know, we did it for our, what was then O-level, equivalent of GCSE now. And it really ignited my love of, of reading. You know, I, I wrote these incredibly long and probably very tedious essays about, you know, Cathy and Heathcliff. <laughs> and then, you know, Edgar Linton and, you know, kind of understood metaphor for the first time and... You know, all these things that when you're 14 and, and just sort of beginning to learn them are incredibly exciting. And I don't think even when I read literature, you know, Oxford sounds so sort of grand and so exciting. I was never as sort of fired up by it as I was when I was reading Wuthering Heights and writing those kind of O-level essays. You know, I don't think I ever felt such empathy and connection with characters almost ever again. So the fact that this wonderful person, Karen Powell, is is reimagining Emily Bronte, you know, is is just I'm I'm just really bowled over and grateful to her. 
you've made me really want to read Karen Paul's book now. <laughs> so I think I'm going to go off and order that. I I think you can definitely see the influences of of Wuthering Heights on on your work, and just with you saying then about the the influence, um, her, her style of writing. Sorry, in the sense that she uses location as a character because I felt completely immersed in the location of the figurine. And it was just, it was such an absorbing read. And I love traveling. I love going abroad, mainly because I live in rainy Manchester. So any kind of <laughs> beautiful, sunny country is a beautiful escape for me from this, from these gray clouds. But I, I felt so absorbed in this world and I almost felt irritated every time I had to come away from your book if I had work or if for any reason whatsoever, I was like, why am I having to leave this beautiful Greek <laughs> world that I'm currently in to go off and do these other things? But I wanted to know, so it's not only the figurine that is set in Greece, you've written several of the novels and a good few of those are also set in Greece. And I wanted to know, how did your relationship to Greece start? Like, where did it start? Well, it began on a very particular day back in 1977 when my mother took me and my sister there on holiday and I was 16 years old and I hadn't really travelled at all then. I mean, all our summer holidays had been on the Sussex coast, which was cold and the sea was kind of very rarely blue, more like greeny-brown. And, you know, we'd had very traditional British buckets and spades holidays. And when my parents divorced and my mother, for the first time in many years, had to go and get a job to support us, she, one of her priorities, I don't really know how she did it now, but she was obviously determined, was to take my sister and me somewhere else, you know, to see the Mediterranean, and it was partly for herself as well, because she had never travelled. So the three of us landed one July afternoon in Athens, you know, and got off the plane like the protagonist does at the beginning of the figurine, and we were just dazzled by what we encountered. You know, it to me, it was just intoxicating. And from that moment Onwards, you know, I had fallen in love with Greece at that instant, and I went back every single year, and then subsequently many, many times a year. And you know, my relationship with Greece has grown. And then I'm sort of after many years of going, I suddenly had this, you know, second epiphany moment, if you like, of inspiration to write the island which was as much a surprise to me as landing in Greece on that July day all those decades earlier. So, you know, I feel Greece has a massive influence on my life. It's not particularly rational, apart from, for me, when people say, why do you like Greece so much? I kind of, well, actually now I could just show them the front cover of the figurine and say, well, look at this blue you know, even neurologically, it's been proven that to have a blue sky and spend time in front of a blue sea, it's actually good for you. It's, you know, it is good for your physical health and your mental health. So, you know, this is quite new thinking. 
It's like a dose of vitamin D. You know, we're all taking vitamin D pills right now. Probably 30 years ago, you know, we'd all heard of vitamin C, but vitamin D, well, you know, what was that? So grief to me is my vitamin D. It is my my health, my well-being, and it provides me with, you know, inspiration, you know, more than I'm probably ever going to be able to write about. I think your book, the figurine is my source of vitamin D. <laughs> so, <laughs> I wanted to ask, why did you want to return to Greece? Obviously, you you live there, but I mean, in in the sense of your work for the figurine, what inspired that story? Well, this particular story is about an archaeological treasure, and although I've been going to Greece all these years now and in particular to Crete, where I have a house, I'd never been that connected with archaeology, with the ancient time. I've always written about the 20th century and been very comfortable to do that because I feel it's a century that I that I know, that I lived. And I've never really been able to take my mind back even more than 100 years, let alone many thousand. But one day in, in Crete, I met an archaeologist and I suddenly realised that they weren't this sort of other breed of strange people that I couldn't connect with. They were actually, I, I, I talk about them like they're almost from another planet because in some ways they are, or they are extraordinary people who I suddenly realised I'd never appreciated because they're bringing, they are connecting things, events or objects which have existed for a thou- you know thousands of years with today and i realized that actually they weren't talking about something that had nothing to do with me and whenever i now meet an archaeologist i i appreciate that they are not they're not just historians you know they are scientists they are detectives and they are storytellers and this particular archaeologist, who's called Gerald Cadogan, kind of instilled in me this kind of eye-opening appreciation of of how the past connects with the present and why their work is so important, how it enriches who we are right now. And so the figurine is about, essentially, about the theft of something that's very old and very precious and why that matters um, and the whole, actually meta- metaphorically, the notion of, of home and where something really belongs. Yeah, and I I found that so interesting to read about because I don't feel like it's it's not something that's, that's commonly sort of known, I think, if you're not maybe from a place like that. This was all definitely something that was kind of new to me. Obviously, we know these these beautiful art- artifacts and these beautiful things exist, but it was the the trafficking and the looting that really intrigued me because I didn't even know that. I don't know if it's just my naivety, but I didn't know that that the the trafficking, the looting, I didn't know that existed. Well, you know, I didn't, you know, until I started, you know, acquainting myself a bit more with archaeology. I just thought, oh, they find old things. They draw conclusions about how people lived and then things go in a museum. But underneath all this, you know, is this 
danger of things being lost and being, you know, and this is a huge, you know, international looting and trafficking of archaeological treasures is a is a huge issue. And so like you, I, I, of, I mean, very often I start from exactly the same point as my reader at the beginning when I'm, before I even begin the book, I usually discover something that I had no idea about. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting that you say, I didn't know about this because that was me. That's always me. You know, I never write about anything that I've known about for years and then I just think, oh, I think I'll write about that. I discover something that is is completely a revelation to me, you know, a little bit like finding that leprosy existed in the 20th century, which was the starting point of the island. You know, with this, I, you know, I had no idea that people loot these treasures and, and also that they happen along the same kind of lines as drug trafficking and peak trafficking, because very often the same people are involved in moving one thing from A to B because they're they're risk takers and they're prepared to take these risks because the stakes are very high. So it is, you know, it's a big it's a big subject. And obviously trafficking of drugs and people is a you know on a you know a different scale of you know as of crime against humanity, but they're often done by the same people. And as say, they make a lot of money out of it. Yeah, I find that fascinating that this isn't something that, that you knew about before you started writing this because it feels as though this is something that you're you're so like absorbed by yourself. It seems that like it, the level of detail in this story, it just doesn't seem like something that, that was new to you. So how much research did you have to do into this, into the trafficking and looting and how these sort of chain of events work and the people that have to be involved in these things. What was the research process like for you? Well, it always starts with reading. You know, that's always the starting point for me in that I get all the books I can. I'm a member of a brilliant library in London that I go and sit in usually for a couple of years and I just work my way through all the the books. And as you know yourself, when you read one book, at the back of it, there's always a huge bibliography if it's non-fiction. And then one book leads you to many more from that book, you know, and then from those books that you follow up, they have, you know, it's like this sort of ever-expanding, huge kind of like a tree of knowledge that you have to work out which branch you're going to creep along. So a lot of reading and then talking to the people who are you know, experts in that area. And there are people who are, you know, there's a some academics who specialise in the tracking down of looted archaeological objects. And then occasionally, as has happened with this story, suddenly something will happen that's very much in the news that will happen even that you didn't expect, which is the, you know, the loss of these objects at the British Museum you know, back in August, suddenly there was this press release from the British Museum that they discovered that maybe 2,000 objects have gone missing from their their collections. And then you think, wow, you know, this is a real live 
situation and then you follow that up and you talk to people about that. So, you know, very often research feels like something that you're doing, you're reading things from maybe a while ago, you know, things that were written about a few decades ago and then suddenly it becomes more current and you're reading, you know, very live French called actuality. You know, they are actual, they are the current news items. So, no, it's been been a, an exciting time to research it. And then at the same time, during the time of writing this book, I've become involved in the campaign to reunify the Parthenon sculptures, the ones that Elgin brought back in the 19th century. And all of that has created some very live connections with you know, academics who, like me, believe very strongly that these things should live where they were originally created. So, yeah, the research is a, a live, very kind of lively process of, you know, reading, which is always quite joyful, sometimes hard work, talking to academics and obviously, in my case, travelling. You know, I went more or less every museum in Greece that houses one of or more of these figurines um, and of course I went on a dig you know that was the most important bit for me was actually living the experience that my protagonist has as being of being on a, a live archaeological excavation where you're in a place that looks very rocky and inhospitable and it's full of these amazing people bent double in sunshine you know, scraping away at what looks like a patch of dry earth until they find something. So, yeah, mixture of being in a quiet, you know, half-lit place reading and then everything between that and being on a hillside watching people digging things up. That's incredible. <laughs> I was not expecting you to say this level of research when you into it. You know, there's a difference between having lots of stacks of books and speaking to lots of people to actually being digging with your hands. Getting your hands dirty. <laughs> I love that though. I love that, you know, you've clearly really immersed yourself in this story and it it, it becomes so apparent when you read this book. You know, I... I cannot recommend this book to our listeners enough. And I mean, I know they can't see this right now, but this book is, it's its very big. It's a bit of a toe, 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 that's how you describe it. Really getting most in the story. It's totally absorbing and it's so visceral. And I now can completely see that, you know, the reason that there was so many moments in the book that felt so visceral were because you've, you've been a part of these worlds. You've, you've, traveled there you visited these sites you visited these museums you've had this experience on a dig and um, you know you visited Athens with your family and then you visited for many years after you get a complete sense of that and I just think it's so beautifully written so thank you for for writing this because we've had terrible weather here and <laughs> I've needed an escapist book and this was perfect for that now it, although i've spoken about the many the many beautiful things about this book that i really enjoyed you know it is set against this backdrop um of quite a a frightening political landscape and, and social landscape and that is you know the the junta dictatorship i think is, is it junta that's how you say it 
Well, yes, you can say all the the Greeks would say junta. Then they they have this in their alphabet this sort of he sound that comes from the throat, and actually junta it sounds more sinister than mm. so junta. <laughs> that sounds more frightening now I think of it like that. But it is, you know, it is set against this backdrop of of their dictatorship and you know there are there is lots of of violence and corruption and you don't kind of shy away from any of that that violent detail and i think at the beginning of the book helena your protagonist describes her uh, her grandfather is is quite heavily involved in this dictatorship and i don't know how much to say in terms of i don't want to spoil anything but he is involved with this dictatorship and she describes her grandfather at the beginning of the book as as Quietly sinister, I think she says. What did her grandfather's character represent to you? Well, he represents absolutely the the cruelty of that hunter period from 67 to 74, when three colonels staged a coup and took over Greece and basically kicked out democracy for seven years and persecuted people who were on the left. And although they imposed this very sort of organised facade on Greece, and in fact they they very much developed tourism, which is a sort of tremendous irony, in fact, because they saw tourism as a good source of income for Greece. But behind that facade, you know, people who didn't agree with losing democracy, and, and who would really, but lots of people just, you know, went along with the regime through fear, but they suspended, um, obviously, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. Certain music was banned. They censored films. You know, it was a period of real uh, censorship and imprisoned people who didn't agree with them and put them onto these islands of exile that I've actually written about in particularly in those who were loved. So the same islands, some of the same islands that were used as places of imprisonment and exile in the Greek Civil War at the end of the 1940s became once again places of imprisonment um, during the junta, you know, right up until 1974. So Helena's grandfather, Stamatis, is representative of all that cruelty and, you know, has absolutely... No self-doubt, you know, completely uncompromising individual who never, ever questions his own behaviour or of the people who who lead the country, and is quite simply, yeah, he's he's a he represents all the oppression of that time. I think you said earlier that when you first visited Athens, it was, did you say it was nineteen seventy-seven? Yeah, yeah. So it was just after it had all come to an end. When you were, because you would have been a child then, how how old were you? Yeah. Well, I was a teenager. Oh, a teenager. In 17, yeah. Do you think you were aware of any, was it apparent that any that any of these things had just happened? Could you see the kind of the fallout of any of that or? No. I mean, I think this is the thing, when one's a tourist, you you only see what's beautiful and what's presented yeah. to you. And I think we're all like that. Mm-hmm. I think I definitely was in Spain, you know, during when Franco was still the dictator there. 
and like many of us, you know, we lay out, stretched our um, towels out on the beach and put the ombre solaire factor two, which it was in those days, you know, in sort of sunbays. And at the same time, there were people in prison, not far from probably where we were lying, getting our super suntans, you know, in prison for being simply on the left. So I think very often, you know, tourists are quite naive and, you know, that's why we go on holiday to have a lovely time and to, you know, forget it, forget all our own troubles. But in, in Greece, no, I wouldn't have been even remotely aware. Although I'm older than Helena is when she first goes to Athens and she's, a, she's an eight-year-old and everything is, gosh, wow, and big and bustling and sunny and lovely. <laughs> Gradually kind of sees below the surface. I actually wanted to ask about that because I loved your style of storytelling for this book. You know, you we, we as the readers track Helena from a young age um, until she's a young adult. And I I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed seeing her arrive in this place and full of, you know, innocence and naivety, essentially. And then there are certain, you know, there were like cracks that start to appear and, and things that she overhears or sees and she kind of starts to understand that like not everything is quite as it seems why did you want to to tell the story in this way you know for us to track Helena in this way well I think I'm really always attracted by the child grandmother relationship I was I was brought up not by my grandmother but my grandmother lived with us so she was a very big part of my life and I think the fact that Helena sort of observes her grandmother is a little bit as I observed my own grandmother. And, you know, always a very warm, lovely, not cuddly, well, cuddly relationship. Just it's the nicest possible relationship, the granddaughter-grandmother relationship. And at the same time as I grew up, I began to wonder why my grandmother was like, she was, you know, you question more as you grow up. And I wanted to see Helena doing the same thing and then slightly becoming critical of her, realising that she was sort of under the the thumb of this grandfather figure. I mean, I'd actually never met my grandfather. He was, he'd already died when I was born. But I just could detect that my grandmother and he had not had an equal relationship. Um, so there's a little bit of that sort of autobiographical observation coming out there. And I think particularly, and I really do believe more so in Greece than 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 in Britain, Greek women of that sort of age group. So the grandmother was born in the late 19th century and very much so the second class citizen. You know, women were, as they were in, in Britain for you know, the first few decades of 20th century, you know, not as important, if you like, mm -hmm. as the men in a marriage, you know, doing what they were told. And that's very much the grandmother. She's she's had to, in some ways, choose between loyalty to her husband and the love that she has for her children. Mm -hmm. And on the whole, she has but almost for reasons of her own personal safety, had to 
go along with her husband um, and she's therefore made sacrifices in respect of her children. I think it's such a complex situation that she's in as well. You know, she she almost doesn't really have a choice but to kind of be present to be witness to all of the things that he's involved with and doing. I loved the way you wrote these characters. You know, they were full of complexities and nuances. And and one character that I felt particularly invested in was Helena's mother, uh, Mary. She's an incredibly strong character and her sort of refusal to to return to her home was something that I was really drawn in by uh, because I think it's such a difficult decision to make but it's clearly something that she's she's thought about you know very intensely and I think she feels this almost disconnect that's what I got a sense of anyway um that she's kind of away from her home and away from her family but it's also a choice that she needed to make for for her own self in order to kind of be be mentally okay and I I wanted to ask why do you think that that Mary, even though she's so adamant that she doesn't want to return to Greece, why she feels it's important to continue to send her daughter there? Mm. Well, she only does that at the point when her father has died. So without giving her too much of a plot spoiler, but it's probably fairly obvious that <laughs> she's all around that um, does not love her father. So she, although she's left... She does have this very strong love of Greece and of Greek culture. And I know many Greeks who, who feel that way, who have this awful split within themselves, even in the 21st century, of being very strongly connected with their motherland. And yet they loathe the politicians. And that, that gives them a, a real sort of inner sort of turmoil because I know many Greeks who live outside Greece who, who do very well you know they haven't left they've left usually for economic reasons and they're doing very well materially in Britain you know they're much happier with the education system the health system the what they're paid and how they live and at the same time they feel an absolute almost a sort of knife in the heart on a day-to-day basis that they're not in Greece because of all the good things about Greece. And I think that's how Mary, Helena's mother, feels. She wants her to to connect mm-hmm. with this beautiful country and to speak the language and to engage in the you know, in the culture. So, you know, she and and very much Mary is very Greek and the Greeks and the British we come from different planets in the way that we're sort of made and, and how we react to things and what matters to us. So she she couldn't go and live there again, but she wants her daughter to understand and appreciate the good bits. And and there were there were lots of good bits, although we've spoken about, you know, the the darker things that she encounters, you know, there are lots of good bits and th- there's probably very few characters in this book there are two that I can three actually that I can think of that I weren't so keen on and I'm sure you can imagine who those characters were but there were lots of wonderful characters in there and I think I don't really know what this character's role was I think she was a housekeeper but then she kind of acted as 
as as a as a nanny towards Helena when she's there, but I don't think she's officially a nanny. What was the inspiration for that character? Because I thought she was so wonderful and just wanted to hear you speak more about her. Yeah, Dina is the sort of long-suffering maid in the very wealthy apartment of the grandparents of Helena. And gosh, she is a fairly typical example of a young woman who has left her village basically to make a living. And many such women existed in Greece. You know, it was economically completely sort of bankrupt and poverty-stricken country after the occupation by the Nazis, you know, up until 43, 44, and then further reduced to practically nothing by the Civil War, you know, which went on until 1949. So for a whole decade, Greece was really losing its 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 wealth and at the beginning of the 1950s was extremely poor. And many young women left the countryside to get work in cities. They were very often exploited, abused, and had a sort of terrible time. And in fact, Dina, we don't see her being, you know, serially abused by two men that she encounters most in her life. But she's not well treated, but her life is better than it would be if she'd stayed in the Peloponnese, which is where she comes from. And I threw in into her story something that, you know, in, in itself could be a whole book. And that is that her family were not left-wing, you know, they're not communists. That's not, you know, I'm making her sympathetic. But she comes from a family who've been more sympathetic to the right, but who have been at one point attacked during the civil war by the communists so it, trying to sort of make the point that that civil war was very very complex mm-hmm. it wasn't just good people on the left bad people on the right both sides committed these kind of terrible crimes mm-hmm. and Dina has survived all that and has been taken on essentially by a right-wing family because that is her own family background but she's a very kind person She's very uncomplaining. She's very long-suffering. She's a very good cook. But what she yearns for most of all is to t- return to her roots. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one day she has the opportunity to do that. So we see her, you know, at two very different stages of her life. One when she's just being the long-suffering maid without complaining. She's very kind to Helena just because she is a very kind, loving person. And then, you know, one day she has the opportunity to go back to her her village, which is, you know, ultimately the dream of many people who leave a rural community in, in Greece because the quality of life back in the village has something very magical about it. So, yes, I, I rather love Dina too. I could have written that whole well, if you if you want to write a whole novel, I would love to read that. So <laughs> I'm ready when you are, Victoria. <laughs> no, she's she's a beautiful character, and I love her so much. And I loved how she 
sort of guided Helena away from the, the horrors of what her grandfather might have been involved in and you know the she she guided her away from the darker elements and and brought her into the light of Greece and how and the beauty of Greece and you know they got to watch the I don't know if I'm allowed to say this because I don't know if it's a spoiler because it's such a beautiful moment with them but when she takes her to watch the the moon landing and they go and watch it on the the TV in one of the cafes and I just thought that was just the most beautiful moment between them I it's very clear that I loved this book and I encourage all of our listeners to to read the figurine but I wanted to ask the final question is more of a deep dive into Greece because it's it's a place that you're clearly so passionate about I wanted to ask what are the things that you love most about Greece gosh <laughs> well it's a big question I genuinely think that the, that the book cover kind of gives the obvious answer I do I love the light there mm-hmm. it's somewhere you know, obviously they have grey days. They've had these terrible floods and storms recently. So, you know, one wouldn't want to give the impression that it's sort of a paradise without its even climactic issues now. But majority of the time in the summer, there is this astonishing light that just makes me supremely happy. And I get on very well with Greek people. You know, I have many Greek friends now and, you know, they are... are kind and hospitable and we have a lot of fun together and they enjoy life for the moment and that's quite nice to dip into mm-hmm. when you're a you know a more come from a more phlegmatic nation of British you know perhaps they don't necessarily look on the bright side because I've met some you know extreme pessimism in Greece mm-hmm. but even with extreme pessimists they'll really live life for the here and now mm-hmm. and that's sometimes massively engaging so the light and the laughter let's say that i love that and they really are the most kind and hospitable people i visited greece a good few years ago now and i went to corfu and i the mem the memories never left me that we went to this restaurant and it was this it was this man's restaurant and he it was it was just him and his family that that were working in this restaurant and you you really felt like they would go home and then they would come back to work and it was like this was their sort of haven and they they loved all of the customers and they gave you so much love and warmth and you really felt appreciated as a customer and and you've just I've never experienced that in any UK restaurant. <laughs> you don't get anything like that. And and he brought us in and he he served us and then he brought out this dish and was like I think it was some kind of pork dish and he said that they'd just been experimenting in the kitchen and they just wanted to share this this thing they'd been experimenting with us and it was free and I was like free food? What? What is going on here? But he wanted to share that with with me and they brought us a, a carafe of wine at the end. We'd already had one carafe, but they wanted to give us another one for free. And you just would never get that level of hospitality here. And I I was totally bowled over by it. And I think you're so right. They are just the most gorgeous people. And I've yeah, the memories just never left me. The, the hospitality is what you describe is completely typical, you know, in Crete. You get free pudding. You never pay for pudding. You get free fruit and 
then some cake and some ice cream and you think you know and then comes another carafe of wine and that is literally how they are they want to give yeah but it, it must completely pay off for them especially with with tourists because we went back to that restaurant because we were you know we were only there for a week and we went back to that restaurant because we never forgot that, that kindness and you don't you don't forget that kindness so <laughs> for all our listeners this is your sign to go to Greece <laughs> if they wanted a push to book that plane ticket now is the time <laughs> so my my very final question is something that we love to end on which is is there anything that you've been enjoying recently that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Gosh, well, what have I been enjoying? I really enjoyed Oppenheimer, which everybody told me was very long and some parts tedious. I absolutely loved it. And last night I started watching the series of Boiling Point. You know, there was the film. Yeah. They're doing Boiling Series. And oh my goodness, it's quite stressy, but it's very real because I spent a lot of my teenage working in a kitchen of a restaurant and it's exactly how it is. There's almost no obvious connection between the front of the house and what's really going on in the kitchen with all the flames and the anger and the bad temper and flying knives and I think it captures it perfectly. Mm -hmm. So that's my current addiction. I can't wait to watch it. Um, I am an actor and that was the one audition that I really wanted to get and I didn't get it. And I am absolutely devastated and I know I'm going to watch it with so much jealousy because I I really want to work with that director. He's he's just incredible and he's actually known for, um, he only likes to do around four takes and his final take is usually when he says to his actors, go rogue. And they kind of have freedom to play about and to kind of whatever they think the character might do in the scene or whatever they want to kind of play with or experiment with, they have the opportunity to do so. So you can you can have that for the rest of the series. Well, next time, next time, I'm sure you'll you'll get the chance. I hope so. I really hope so. <laughs> but those are some uh, fabulous recommendations. So thank you. And for our listeners, the figurine is out now uh, in hardback and published by Headline Review. I know it's out in the UK, but I was unsure where else it is at the moment. It's coming out in France in a couple of weeks in French and in Greek at the beginning of December. Wow, amazing. And you've, you've learned Greek now, haven't you? Or you're still learning? Well... A language is an ongoing... I think I'm still yeah. learning English, actually. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> but I'm, it's an ongoing process, but I'm pretty fluent, yes. Yeah, goodness. So you can read your own books in, in Greek. Yeah, and I can check whether they cut anything out. <laughs> Meticulously. <laughs> that word. <laughs> Wants to be very annoying. <laughs> But what a gorgeous language to learn as well. I am completely in awe of you because I am currently reading Han, Han Kang's Greek lessons. Trying to read certain Greek words are just impossible <laughs> to me. It's just a lot of symbols and it's beautiful, but my brain can't quite comprehend it. So how you've learned that, I'm in complete awe of you. I think like vitamin D, 
Learning a language is very good for the brain. Yeah, I need to do that then. <laughs> As you get older and older, it's more and more important. Brain teaching over Greek definitely helps. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Victoria, where can our listeners find you? Are you on social media? Do you have a website that they can go to? Instagram and Twitter. And I have a website. So various places. <laughs> I will link all of those in the show notes. Victoria, thank you so much for, for joining me on this uh, we've we've got some sunshine now. It was grey when I first started talking to you. So it's the Victorian slop influence, clearly. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> Leon, Thank you so much for that. Thank you. For our listeners, I will pop a link in the show notes to buy the figurine. I highly recommend that you do. And if you would like to follow Victoria, you can find her social media and website in the show notes. And if you want to follow us, you can do so at a pair of bookends pod on Instagram and at a pair of bookends on Twitter and TikTok. And that is all we've got time for. So thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.